Are you glad you're here today? It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. I hope you're enjoying our service. And, and this is a big weekend, right? Because next weekend is Easter. Yeah, Easter weekend. And we have a service. If you haven't caught on already, 4 o'clock on Saturday are two normal services on Sunday, 9 and 1030. And can't wait to have you. If you want more space, I would suggest Saturday or during all those services, we have overflow in the chapel and also in the quad, uh, and there could be more distant seating for you as well if you prefer that. So, but we want to see it next week. I think it'll be one of the greatest weekends we've ever had. I think it's our best Easter. Been working on it for a long time. Uh, all all the stuff, all the elements coming together. So, not so much the sermon, but the other stuff is going to be great. So, you know, want you to. Why don't you be there and check that out? So uh, um, we, we've been in a series called The Greatest Week in History. And then the last few Sundays we've been talking about it. That week started when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And the people were shouting, Son of David, Hosanna. Uh, the, the city was in an uproar. They had all gathered to celebrate the Passover, which we'll talk about later. And the people are yelling, Hosanna, what we just sang, which means save us. Son of David, save us. They understood that Jesus was coming as Messiah. And a lot of people were, were taking off their coats and throwing it uh, along the road for the donkey to walk on and, and cutting palm branches and throwing those into the road. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And all this is happening, the whole town's buzzing. Jesus comes in, we believe, through the eastern gate. He, the temple is right adjacent there. He looks around the temple, but he actually leaves Jerusalem, goes back through the Kidron Valley over the Mount of Olives to Bethany, and he stays there that night. Monday, Jesus then comes back into Jerusalem and specifically into the temple. And that's when he sees what's happening on the Temple Mount, and he protests that by flipping over the tables of the money changers and causing a, a big disturbance on the Temple Mount. That's what happens on Monday. Tuesday, he then leaves to Bethany, comes back, enters Jerusalem on Tuesday. That's where he's teaching in the temple. And then the leaders challenge him. And the first thing they challenge him on is, who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to do everything you're doing? Who gives you the right to come and upset the temple system? Who gives you the right to say what you're saying? And as they have that interchange that we've already talked about, then Jesus started teaching again. But, but all through that, the religious leaders then would continue to ask questions that were really meant to ensnare Jesus in his words. Of course, none of that worked. And Jesus kept teaching. And then later, uh, Tuesday evening, Jesus leaves Jerusalem, probably through that eastern gate again, down the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives. And as he's doing that, the disciples ask him a question. And, uh, and then Jesus, and it's a question about the future, and then Jesus answers that question. When Jesus answers that question, it's the longest answer that he's ever given that we have recorded. 
In Matthew, his answer is two chapters, chapter 24 and 25. It's huge. And so we're going to hit some of this. And what I want us to see is what Jesus says about the future. So we're going to be talking about some different things. So I really need you to focus in, buckle up, and get ready, all right? Try to focus and, and stay with me, right? We'll cover, cover some ground here. Tuesday evening, they're on the Mount of Olives with the disciples. Jesus starts talking about the future, and the first thing they talk about is about the temple. Now, before we get into this, why would we look into this? Because Jesus is not just throwing out a bunch of random facts about the future so that we can speculate about what things are happening. The, Jesus knows he's going to die, right? And as he's, he knows he's going to die in a matter of a couple days. And he's telling his followers about the future to prepare them for what is going to come. And so he's telling us things that he thinks Jesus knows that we need to know. And so that's the whole point. But now let me lay some background about the temple. Uh, you know, the temple came up before, and, uh, and so I, I want to touch back on that. We've actually had a few series, and they just happen to be in chronological order, so I've been trying to tie everything together. But if you go back in Israel's history, remember, you know, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, Iraq. He goes to a place he's never been before, Canaan. He has a grandson who has 12 sons, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. But about that time, they go down to Egypt, and they eventually become enslaved, and they're there 400 years, and they grow from a family of about 70-something to like a million people. Then God calls Moses, right? And so God calls Moses. Moses goes back to Egypt to deliver his people, and he tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Of course, Pharaoh's not going to let you know, all these slaves go, and so there's an issue there, and God brings on the 10 plagues onto Egypt. We've seen the movie, right? And, and then the 10th plague was the worst plague, remember? The death of the firstborn. And so as Moses and Pharaoh kind of have this tug of war, it's really God, and then this last plague, the worst plague, is going to happen, God instructs the Israelites to do something. He says, okay, death, this is judgment coming on the land in the form of the death of the firstborn. Now, if you're a God follower, if all the Israelites, they're instructed that they should take a spotless lamb, kill it. They're, they're going to end up eating it that night. But the first thing to do is they take the blood and they get some kind of like weeds, hyssop, and they dip that into the blood. And then they spread the blood on the exterior doorpost of their house, above their front door. They put that up there. And then God says, when you do that, when the blood's applied to your home, then when judgment comes on all the land of Egypt, it will pass over those homes that are marked with blood. Does that make sense? That's where we get the word Passover, right? Okay, so that, that is all happening. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. So slavery, so they, they leave Egypt after that, that 10th plague. Moses gets the law, right? After the law, he has the people build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the four forerunner to the temple, it's like a movable tent. And then they take that, and that's where they have 
you know, er, the, the ark and all this stuff that, that they worship God with. But as they move through the wilderness, that goes with them. Then they go into the land. They go in with the tabernacle. Then they have kings. And the King David, he starts accumulating things for building a temple. But his son Solomon, King Solomon is the one that actually constructs the temple. So the temple is built on a hill in Jerusalem. And then everything's great for a while. But about 400 years later, another 400 years, um, Babylon comes in, right? We've talked about this. And they conquer Jerusalem. They've already got Israel, then it's Judah, then, then Jerusalem falls. And when they come in, they wipe out and destroy the temple. And they take the people, the Babylonians take the people into exile. Now, one of the prophets says, this exile is only going to last 70 years. And sure enough, 70 years later, now Medo-Persia has taken over for Babylon, but Xerxes, Artaxerxes that we can read about in any history book, he then makes a decree saying that the people can go back to Jerusalem and they can rebuild the temple. In the meantime, there was another prophet in exile who said, hey, whenever a, a leader, the king, makes a decree that they can go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the date of that decree starts a 483-year countdown to when the Messiah will be in Jerusalem and be cut off, although nobody really knew what cut off meant. But it'd be a 483-year countdown. We talked about that, right? So if you missed that, you could go check that out. So so that starts when the decree happens. Well, Ezra and uh, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, they all go in different waves in the exile, and the temple is rebuilt. It's called the second temple. Zerubbabel builds that. But some people, because it was only 70 years ago, the Solomon's temple was there, they see both temples, and this temple's not as impressive as the last temple was. They've, some people have seen both. And it's that temple that is still standing when Jerusalem comes into, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But there's a side note here. About 50 years before Jesus rides into Jerusalem, or 20 years before the birth of Christ, uh, there was a, a king, Herod the Great, one, one of the Herods, but the first Herod, the greatest Herod, Herod the Great took over the throne and he controlled um, Judea. And then he greatly, he built a massive retaining wall around the Temple Mount, and he greatly expanded the Temple Mount, the area of this Temple Mount. He made way, way bigger. And then he refurbished the temple itself and made the temple much more impressive. Now the temple looks better than it's ever looked. And this just happened within the last 50 years they've been working on it. So even during Jesus' life, they've been working on the temple. And now the temple part's done. And now it's uh, Tuesday evening and Jesus is leaving. And this sets the scene because they're probably leaving out of the Eastern Gate, which is right adjacent to the temple. And as they're leaving the city, the disciples are impressed with the temple, and they point it out to Jesus. Now are we ready? Okay, that's the context. Okay, Matthew 24, beginning of verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up 
to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So the temple now is looking really impressive. Temple grounds have never been bigger. Temple's been remodeled. The, the disciples are like, you know, Jesus, this really is a great temple. And Jesus says, hey, I'm telling you, there's going to be a day when not one stone will be left upon another as far as the temple's concerned. That came true 40 years after Jesus said that. 40 years after the greatest week in history. What happened then was Judea is still under Roman rule. There's a big revolt of the Jewish people. They have a series of battles, but finally the Roman general Titus besieges Jerusalem in 70 AD, 40 years after Christ says this, and then finally he gets access to the city and then fights his way up to the Temple Mount, and then the temple is burned. When the temple is burned, then everybody knows there's gold. Herod had put gold plating on the temple. There were all the golden artifacts, like the golden menorah inside the temple. And so the temple is burned. Some of those artifacts were saved. But then after it was burned, the gold melted all through. And the Roman soldiers then took apart every single block, every stone to try to get some of that gold that had melted as the temple was burned. So 40 years after Jesus says this, that's exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, today, if you go to Rome, you can go see the Arch of Titus. We have a picture of it. The Arch of Titus was built back then to commemorate General Titus's victory at the fall of Rome. And if you look closely at the Arch of Titus on the inside, there's a relief that shows this. This is the parade through Rome by, by General Titus and his army, and look what they're carrying. They're carrying the menorah, the candlestick, the gold candlestick from the temple. This is, you can see this today. So all this happened, and think about it. Since 70 AD, since 40 years after the greatest week in history, 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the temple was torn down, and there hasn't been another temple. So what does that mean? Well, for Jewish people, that's huge. Jews still uh, celebrate a day called Yom Kippur. It's on their calendars. But they have no temple to make a sacrifice in. They cannot make a sacrifice because sacrifices were to be in the temple, and the temple was to be at a certain place in Jerusalem, and they don't have access to that. And why don't they have access? Because right now, there's a, a Muslim shrine, and how that got there is about 600 years later, after this Rome stuff, the Ottoman Empire came into power, which was Muslim, and the Muslims conquered Jerusalem, and then they built on the Temple Mount, on the exact site of the temple, a shrine called the Dome of the Rock. And we have a picture of that. So first of all, here's the Temple Mount. So the larger square that you see, I got a, I got a pointer. Dangerous, I got a pointer. All right, so this, this, this is Jerusalem, 
This is the Kidron Valley right here. This is the Eastern Gate. Here's Jerusalem. This is the old city of David here that they're just now ex excavating. And uh, so you have the Temple Mount. And let's go to the next picture. It shows a little bit more about what's going on. So here, here's the Temple Mount, old city of David, Wailing Wall. This is exactly where the temple stood now. It's a shrine, the Dome of the Rock. This is a mosque up also on the Temple Mount. And then here's the Kidron Valley right outside this eastern gate. And then here is the Mount of Olives. Here's where the disciples are when Jesus is answering all these questions, and they're overlooking the Temple Mount and not the mosque, but the temple that was there. So the temple was built. And by the way, so right now there's the, the, the mosque is there. But what, what's our next slide show? And I'll walk through these. So here's another view looking kind of from the, the, the west. Um, so there's the same Dome of the Rock. This is called the Wailing Wall. This is what's left of the retaining wall that Herod built in the first century to expand the Temple Mount, to make the Temple Mount bigger. So every stone was removed above the Temple Mount, but the retaining wall survives. And that's where people go pray, and this is a holy site to the Jewish people, because here's where they pray, and why would they pray here? Because first of all, this is from the first century, but it's the closest place they can get to the temple and worship God. You know, so that's what's going on there. That's what's going on with the Temple Mount. Does that all make sense? Okay. So after Jesus says, hey, yeah, you see this impressive Herod's remodeling of the second temple. You see how everything, how he gold-plated all this, how it's way taller now, total remodel, total huge, totally impressive. The disciples are impressed, and Jesus says, hey, it's all going to be destroyed. On this temple mount, there won't be one stand left standing on another. And that exactly thing happened 40 years later. And the disciples then ask, when? When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? Next verse, verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Okay, so now the crowds are gone. It's Christ and his disciples saying, tell us when will these things happen? And significantly, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Here the disciples have gotten, Jesus says he's going away, he's going to come back, some stuff's going to happen, and they're saying when, that's their question. And when he answers when, it's, it's again the longest answer that Jesus has ever given. And so he starts with that, he starts with the temple, and then he goes to the future seven years. He says, hey, he starts with the future of the temple, said this is going to be wiped out. And then he starts describing a period that's seven years long, that's actually Daniel's 70th seven-year period after that 483 years, there's seven more years, but there's a cutoff. That's Jesus being killed, the Messiah being cut off, and then Daniel says there's a gap, and then there's going to be another seven years in the future, still in the future now. And now Jesus is going to talk to them about that future seven-year period because it has everything to do with the Jewish people and with Israel. And here's what he says in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. So he's saying this is important. 
You got to get this straight. You need to know this. And then he goes on to say, hey, there's going to be false Christs, people claiming to be uh, the, the Messiah. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famines. But that's not the end. He says that's just the beginning of birth pangs. And what we know about birth pain is that it gets more severe as it goes, right, ladies? Yeah, what would I know? But you guys know. So it's going to get worse. Then Jesus says that the fo followers of God are going to be persecuted and killed. And now that happens today. You know, we're kind of numb to that. But every day in places like China and Muslim-controlled countries, Christians are persecuted every day and often killed. It's always in the news. But it's mostly ignored by our media. You have to dig a little bit to find that because nobody's interested. But before the worst, even though there's killing and persecution, before the worst, we know from the rest of the Bible that this church age that hasn't, that's going to start with the crucifixion of Jesus until this last seven years, that's what we're in now. It's been going on now 2,000 years. And, this, and there's the church where the main people who are following Christ now is the church, not the Jewish people. But that's going to flip in the future. And the, part of the reason that flips is before these seven years start, God will remove the church supernaturally. So that's an event called the rapture, where the church, are the people who believe in Christ, we are, if we're alive at this point, we are taken up, snatched away is the way it's said um, in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're taken up. And so then the shift goes away from the church back to Jesus. So at that moment, there's no more Christians. But immediately, God raises up 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And then and even the rapture happening may, may cause some people that know about Christianity to become Christians. But then a lot of Jewish people become Christians during this seven years. And that's what Jesus is describing for us. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So he's saying, now we're, we're entering into this, the seven years. A bunch of Jewish people become believers. They are severely persecuted. People die. And then he says, and then, oh, and by the way, the, the gospel, the same thing that we preach today, will be preached to all the nations. After all the Christians are taken out, people can still become Christians, and they do, especially Jewish people become Christians. And then Jesus describes the middle of that seven-year period. And Jesus mentions something called the abomination of desolation, which Daniel, the prophet from way back when during the captivity, he mentions the same thing. 
And here's what he says in verse 15. That, and by the way, Daniel tells us this happens in the exact middle of this seven years. When the seven years start, you could count it exactly three and a half years later, this happens. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Okay, so here's Jesus referring back to something Daniel the prophet said way back then. And he's saying, in the middle of this tribulation time, there's going to be abomination, desolation. Now, this has been foreshadowed once in history before the time of Christ, where the temple was desecrated. Long story, won't get into that. But Jesus is talking about something future. This will happen in the middle of those seven years, and here's how it's going to happen that we know from the rest of Scripture. That there's going to be a world leader. This world leader is going to sign a peace treaty with Israel, bringing peace to Israel. Three and a half years into this peace treaty, this world leader, who will be identified as the Antichrist, will come to Jerusalem with a lot of power. He will go into the temple, into the most holy place of the temple, and he will declare himself to be God. When this happens, the Jewish people who have recently become Christians, they rebel, and then things get even worse from that point forward. And so here, and here's what we learned. Did you, if you notice this, hold it. There's no temple now. Anybody thinking this while I said that? There's no temple now. How does this happen in the future? We're three and a half years into this seven-year period. He goes into the temple. Good point. My thinking is this peace treaty is signed. You know, all kinds of world leaders have been trying to be, bring peace to the Middle East now for Years and years, right? Israel wasn't even a nation until 1948. They didn't control Jerusalem until 1968. You know, so all this is fairly recent in history. But if a leader could figure out how to get the Muslim people to agree to let the Jewish people to build their temple right where the shrine, the Dome of the Rock is, that would bring peace. For the Jewish people, they would give up a lot to be able to have a temple again because they haven't had a temple to sacrifice since the first century, right? Right? Right. So it seems connected, and this is speculation, that maybe that world leader with that peace treaty, there's something in there that allows the Jewish people to build their temple, and three and a half years later, it's there. But again, speculation, we just know it's there. All right. By the way, Israel's ready to do this now. You can go to Jerusalem today, and you can go into a museum, and they have the plans for the future temple on the Temple Mount that's there right now. The plans, the new plans are all done. Not only that, but all of the things they used in the temple, like the lampstand, the golden lampstand, all those uh, parts and pieces all those implements, they're all there on display in the museum in Jerusalem. By the way, that causes a lot of tension, right? Because Israel is surrounded by Muslim nations who consider the, the shrine, the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy place in Islam. And they all know that that's where the temple was. They, they all know that. But they all know that's where the temple needs to be, the future temple. So that's a huge issue. 
the Jewish people in 1968 got control. By the way, they've been attacked repeatedly and they keep winning. But in 1968, they got Jerusalem. And, but then they allowed the Islamic people to keep worshiping with the Dome of the Rock. They didn't take that away. So that's why there's all this tension going on in the Middle East. Does that make sense? Now Jesus explains the second half three of, the three of the seven years, the second three and a half years, where things get worse. Okay, here we go, verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation. Things get worse. Such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay, so he's just described this seven-year period and the middle of it and how it gets worse at the end. And then at the end of that is the second coming of Christ. He's saying, this is how it's all going to break down. And then he tells them the future of his return. Now, now here's, here's the deal here. Jesus is teaching them, nobody has to guess when I come back. You know, we read earlier, we said many false Christ. How many of you have ever met somebody who said they were Jesus? Because I have. I've met two or three people who said they were Jesus. There's been a lot of people around. You know, in my old job, you, you ran into people who thought they were Jesus. I mean, it just wasn't that unusual. Thought they were Messiah. Today, there are religious leaders around the world saying they're the, they're the second coming of Jesus. Today. So that happens. And here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, when I come back the second time, you don't have to wonder whether it's me or not. He's saying, if somebody says, hey, I, I, see, I, I found this guy. He's Jesus. Come and check him out. Don't go, Jesus says. If somebody says, hey, come in. Hey, come to this seminar. You know, I, I want you to hear this guy. He's, he's the new Jesus. He's second coming Jesus. Jesus says, don't go to that. Jesus says, when I come back, it will be obvious the whole world will know. Here's what he says, verse 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the Son of Man. He's saying, I will split the sky wide open. The whole world will know something's happened. You won't have to guess. And if anybody's telling you I've come back, don't believe them. You'll know. So then the disciples say, you know, what, what do they want to know? When? And we want to know. Well, when are you coming back, Jesus? It's been 2,000 years. When? And Jesus says he's not going to tell us when. But based on what we see in the world around us, it is getting close. Because there are things that were prophesied in Daniel and by Jesus and in Revelation by John, things that were in prophecy that we're, we're reading these things going, well, how would that ever happen? There's no way for that to happen. That must be a miracle for that to happen. You know, for example, 100 years ago, people are going, how does people's, you know, it said the whole world will watch an event that happened in Jerusalem. Well, how would the whole world watch that? Well, now we know, yes, yeah, satellite TV, of course. We don't even think about that. And then how could it be that the whole world can't buy or sell unless they have a mark? You know, what, what's up with that? Well, for most of 
humanity's history, it's been the barter system. What, what, what's a mark? Now, all of a sudden, we're realizing, no, that could easily happen, right? You know, just like, again, not saying this is it, but like, you know, you can maybe not fly unless you have a vaccine, right? Not saying this is it. Please don't misunderstand me. Just saying, now all of a sudden we see that there's systems in place where, oh, that could happen, and it could happen on a world stage. So what I'm saying, we see things happening that all of a sudden is making prophecy go, oh, yeah, I, all this, we can easily see how this has happened, how the world has changed. All right, so that's Tuesday night. Then on Wednesday of the greatest week in history, Jesus has kind of a, a slow day, if you will, in Bethany, out the eastern gate, across the valley, over the Mount of Olives, and now he's in Bethany. But this, he's actually anointed there by a lady, and, and this in front of all the disciples, and there's kind of a controversy there uh, because of the cost of the, the stuff. And that's when Judas is offended by that, by the way. And so then he goes and he makes a plan to betray betray Christ. That happens on Wednesday. And then that brings us to Thursday. Thursday is Passover. It's why all the Jewish people were packed in Jerusalem. It's celebrating Passover. And what's Passover? We talked about it, right? The Jewish people are remembering back to when Moses delivered them from Egypt and the 10 plagues and the 10th plague and that they were to kill the lamb and spread the blood. And so they have this sacrifice that they do in real time in the first century that they're commemorating what happened during the days of Moses and their deliverance from Egypt. So they're all packed in to do Passover. And then um, as that happened, everybody's celebrating Passover. At the meal... Jesus takes some of the elements of the Passover meal and he starts something new. He begins a new remembrance that we're supposed to do until he comes back. And we call that communion. And so we're going to do communion as we teach through what happens next on Thursday. So if you want to participate in communion, you need a, a cup, and boy, there's one down here and a two or three over here. If you didn't get one, you could come down and get one. I don't know, and Wayne may have a few extras in his basket there. So you can get up right now and come down and grab one of those as we continue. So just while I'm talking, get up, come down. I can see you're all rushing, but uh, I think most, no, I think most of you got them. So that's great. Thanks, Wayne. So Jesus tells the disciples to prepare for the Passover meal like everybody else is doing in Jerusalem, in a room that somebody is allowing Jesus to use. He gets up there and he uses a couple of the elements of the meal to institute this new thing, the bread and the cup. And so we're gonna take the bread and the cup, but before we do that, I just wanna give us a moment to prepare our hearts for that because we wanna make sure that we're, when we take the bread and the cup, that we're not just doing it flippantly like, oh, something we're doing. No, that we're doing this the way God wants us to. And that means we're coming in with a repentant heart and that we're focused on what Christ has done for us. Okay, let's pray together. Father, I I pray that you help us to clear our minds and help us to just focus on what Jesus has done for us 2,000 years ago. And then just before that, the night before his crucifixion, 
Lord, he walked the disciples through communion, what we're celebrating today, 2,000 years later, just like you told us. So, Father, we, we come to you knowing that we've sinned against you, and we want to follow you, God. And help us to focus on exactly what happened and nothing else. The greatest gift, the sacrifice of your son, in Christ's name. So now we have these two-sided communion cups, and I want you to turn the juice side down. And actually, we have these because you don't even have to actually touch the communion. If you're worried about germs, just pop it in your mouth. So, all right. So this is our wafer. So peel that back, and there's just a little square in there, and uh, that that's just a wafer of bread. Now... Before we go any further, let, let me just explain something. A lot of people would ask, well, who should take communion? I mean, Jesus told us to do it. But communion is actually reserved only for people who know that they have come to Christ admitting their sin and, and realizing that their sin separates them from God, but also understanding that Christ died for their sin. So you've admitted your sin. You've called out to God for forgiveness. You've called out to God in faith that what Christ did pay for, paid for your sins. So if you're not sure you've come to that point, my, my, what I'm asking you to do is not take communion. And when we all leave, there's going to be trash cans outside to throw our empties in. And it's okay to either put your full one on the table here or just toss it. You know, I don't want you to be embarrassed in any way, but it's okay to get rid of it that way. But for those of you who are believers, and, and by the way, if you're a believer, even if you're not a member of grace, if you know that you've been saved by, by grace alone, trusting in Christ, then you're welcome to, to take it with us. All right, so Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it. Well, let's pick it up here. Verse 26 of chapter 26. Now, I want you to think about this. For 2,000 years, people of different genders, people of different races, people of different socioeconomic classes have come together, gathered together in local churches to take communion together as family, as followers of Christ. Here's, here's what Jesus said, Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's pray together before we do that, okay? Father, we, we again, we thank you, Lord, for this greatest gift in the universe that you would allow your son to voluntarily give up his life, to die for us, to pay for our, our sins. And Father, we understand that this bread, Jesus says, represents his body that was given for us. I'd thank you for that greatest gift in Christ's name. Amen. Christians, let's take the bread together. Jesus continues in the next verse. He said, and when he had taken a cup 
and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So if we'll peel back the other side and get the cup ready. The cup that Jesus says represents the blood that he shed on Calvary. Let's take the cup together. Father God, we thank you that you would allow Jesus to voluntarily shed his own blood for us. And Lord, we remember that and we thank you for that. And we will continue to remember this until he comes. Amen. So that week in history, the greatest week in history, Jesus transforms Passover because the next day, Friday, he offers himself as the spotless lamb to save his people from judgment. And this creates a new covenant that Jesus talks about, a new contract, a new way for God to connect or, or for better us to connect with God, that it's no longer through a sacrificial system that temporarily covers our sins, but it's faith in Christ and Christ alone. Not church, not rituals, just Jesus. That's what he's talking about. The gospel message is this new covenant that is only possible through Christ's death. And so we understand, we talk about this all the time, right? How God's created us. He gave us free will. He didn't want us to be robots. But we all use that gift to sin against him, right? And then that, because God is not only holy, but he's also a perfect judge that all wrongs, all sin has to be punished. And that means we have to be punished. And the punishment is separation from God forever. But God still loved us, and so he made a way for us to be forgiven our sins. Without him just letting it go, he paid, he paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. And so through faith, we can have a relationship with him forever. He says something here about the future. He says, the next time that I drink, he's talking to his disciples, hey, the next time I drink the cup, the fruit of the vine with you, this is Thursday evening before he's crucified, the next time I drink the cup with you, it'll be in my kingdom. And he's saying, do this until I come. And the question is simply this that I want to close with is, are you ready for eternity? Jesus is talking about what's happening and the happening in the future, what's coming, what's coming. And you realize that we've gone through a lot of history in thousands of years, 2,000, since Jesus. And our lifetimes, you know, maybe 100 years possibly. But all that's a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Here's what Jesus said. When he comes back at the end of those seven years and then the worst three and a half, last part of them, that when he comes back and splits the sky open and everybody sees Jesus, that people will mourn 
mourn. Why will they mourn? Because they have been killing all of God's people. It's gotten worse and worse, and they're attacking Israel, where now people are, are believers, and all this is happening. And then when he, he comes, they mourn. Why? Because then it's too late. You see, we only have this life to come to Christ. And the question is, are you ready for eternity? Are you ready? And if you are, then the question is, what are you doing to help others be ready? Because God wants, once we become a believer, the most important decision we ever make, then God wants us, God's commissioned us, God's told us it's our job to point other people to him so they can receive what we have been so graciously given. And then I'm just here to tell you, this week, this week here in Sandusky County is maybe the best week of the year to invite people to church and have them hear about God. It's the easiest week. Just yesterday, I was up at the wreck. Right before I left, I was over here working. I grabbed one of those little cards that are available, stuck it in my pocket, went up to the wreck. A guy approached me. We have a mutual friend, George. And a guy came up to me, a guy named Vic, and he started a conversation with me. And then we, got, we were talking about church. And then I invited him to church. And then I pulled out my card. You know, I said, well, you know, this was yesterday. I said, well, tomorrow, you know, we're here. And then Easter weekend, we have this extra service on Saturday, and he described himself as a lapsed Catholic, you know, probably like a lot of you described yourself at one point. And, uh, you know, and we're just, and then he says, yeah, I think I'll come. It's not that hard. And here's what I'm saying. God can use you to impact somebody for eternity. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Kevin, you're a pastor. I just became a Christian last Sunday. Yeah, well, you probably know, you probably have good relationships with a lot more non-believers than I do. I'm telling you, God can use you in a huge way to impact eternity. Don't miss the opportunity. Let's stand together for prayer. And Tim's gonna lead us in a final song. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you how you've worked through history and the life you've given us today. Lord, help us to live it in a way that honors you. In Christ's name, amen.